Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of Resilient Health Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Darren Ingalls, and joining me on the show today is my brother from another mother, Dr. Paul Anderson. You know, Dr. Anderson and I, we've known each other for a very long time. He's a fellow naturopathic physician in the state of Washington and also one of our, I'll say, primary educators in naturopathic medicine and functional medicine. In fact, I just got back from a conference last weekend in Scottsdale, Arizona, that Dr. Anderson and his group put on that was absolutely fantastic, talking about mitochondrial dysfunction, which we're not going to talk too much about today. Well, we'll have to do that in a future episode, but I'm just so grateful to have Dr. Anderson here today. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. This should be fun. <laughs> so, you know, the, the title of this podcast is Resilient Health Radio. And you and I, you know, we've been in the game a long time and, you know, a big population of people that we're working with, you know, fall under this umbrella of chronic sickness, chronic illness, and it can be Lyme disease, it can be autoimmune disease, it can be cancer. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about someone's fortitude when they're dealing with chronic illness. And I, I think, you know, the first question I want to ask is, you know, what are some of the things you've seen in your years of practice that you find that people aren't aware of that might keep them in a sick condition? And I, I don't want to imply that, that we're blaming anybody for being sick, right. but, you know, in naturopathic medicine, we understand <clears throat> that the body has the capacity to heal on its own and that these obstacles get in the way and stop that process from happening. So what are some of the key things that you've seen that are, are those obstacles? Yeah, I, I think that's the best place to start really, because, um, you know, like you and I see every day, human nature, we want something to blame when we don't feel well. And in a simpler model, if we have break our arm, we kind of know why, what happened, right. Or if we get strep throat, but with chronic illness, um, what happens is whatever the inciting problem was might still be there, might not still be there, but our body kind of loses its way on the, the healing pathway. And I think that um, there's a couple of layers, but the first one, you know, like you say, you never want to blame it. You know, it's not really our fault when our body loses its way. There's other factors, but <clears throat> one of the things that I've, I've come to notice for a long time, but really crystallized in the last few years is if we're chronically ill and we're not really getting better as we want to or on the schedule we want to, the first thing is, is that we lose our empowerment. So, you know, our ability to have self-agency and be an empowered patient and all of that. And people will sometimes think, well, I mean, I don't remember losing it or, you know, what happened. But what what I think goes on, because I've seen this with the chronic illness space, but also my cancer patients is, you don't realize that you're grieving the life that you used to have, where, which was right. healthier, you know? And when you kind of come to grips with that, you can, you can process through that. And literally it's like grieving a loss. It doesn't mean you have to keep it lost, but there's very good research. that shows when we become empowered patients, medical treatments work better. Our quality of life improves. We probably, you know, heal faster, et cetera. And, and I only bring that up first because a lot of us don't realize we're actually grieving something that, you know, may have been a few years ago or maybe been many years ago, which is our, our health. So I think that's one that's, that's really potent because 
it happens slowly and we we don't realize how you know kind of unempowered we can be so that's i think that's a big area um i think the other is you know our, our body has this amazing ability to heal itself you know because for long before there were a lot of doctors we were able to heal ourselves from most things um but in modern times where we get so um we can keep ourselves alive so much easier with you know with drugs and chemistry and all, all sorts of other stuff the immune system and the body's healing uh powers to kind of go back to back to the center get confused and i think what we see in our chronic Ill, Ill people is the body has an image of normal that's actually not normal now so it's kind of keeping us where we're at and that's another thing that's you know just like kind of becoming empowered it's more like becoming biochemically empowered to reacquaint the body with no this is health over here and we want to try and push back that way which the longer we've been chronically ill, that's a, it's baby steps, you know, to get back there, which is why it frustrates people. I think I'm sure you see this every day where they'll say, well, you know, it X infection started this, whether it's, you know, the Lyme family or the HHV family or whomever, or, uh, you know, this toxicity started it or whatever. And we're working on that. Well, why isn't that making me all better now? Well, it's because, to deal with the infections or the toxicity or whatever our body had to, you know, we're not going to hopefully die from it. Our body has to kind of pick a new normal to say, this is as much energy as we have now. And we're just going to keep going here. So I, I think those are areas they're they're very subtle seemingly, and they're not what we think we're looking for, you know, which is if I could just kill this one infection, my life would be better it can be that easy, but usually it's not when we've been sick a while. So I think those are things, and I, I'm sure, you know, you've, you've kind of struggled with this dealing with patients. It's coming to that realization sometimes is not a very uplifting and happy time because you're, you know, you're essentially saying, look, we have more work to do here than it seems. Um, I guess, you know, folks like us though, who were the seventh or eighth or 20th doctor they see, they kind of know there's maybe more going wrong. So I, I think those are things at the real base with, with chronic illness. Yeah. I think one of the things I I've seen a lot of my practice and I know you have as well, you know, this persistent infection. And again, it can be anything from Lyme to a herpes virus to, you know, whatever else. And it's just, I know I was a clinical microbiologist before I was a doctor. And I, I the longer I, I do this, the more I keep thinking about, you know, how much of what people experience is truly the infection versus the immune response to the microbe versus, you know, perhaps some other mechanism uh, related to that organism. I mean, I think, you know, the idea of germ theory is kind of slowly eroding as time goes on. I mean, I think COVID was a great example of this, just that we saw people that got a sniffle and people that died. We had these very polar extreme reaction. If we agree it's relatively the same virus, at least at any given time, you know, what is it about the individual that allows these infections to become so persistent? Yeah, I think, I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, um, one thing I would try and characterize with patients is it, it, you know, it doesn't mean that the infections have no impact on you, especially if there's still some hanging around, but 
by the time you become chronically ill, usually there's there's multiple other pathways that have been, you know, either turned on or things you didn't realize were a problem for you. Your threshold is much lower now, and now they're a big problem. And so you have to kind of look at it as as a holistic uh, issue with with the person. And I do think, you know, not that uh, certainly we would have chosen to have, you know, COVID, but I think what it's done is it's put this idea of, of individuality and individuality of response to a microbe uh, in different perspective, because it's obvious to everybody, why did one member of the family get so sick or pass away? The rest of the family had maybe little to no problem or medium you know, or why did uh, a group of people that we now see, you know, maybe with long COVID, par- part of them felt like they were super healthy before and right. then encounter a virus and suddenly they're chronically ill. That's, you know, that just doesn't make any sense. Well, I think what it did is it sort of took the lid off the fact that we every day, even when we feel super healthy, we're exposed to all kinds of things that aren't good for our health, you know, especially in modern times. And yeah, for some people, you get a big infection. That's enough to bring it all crashing down. Uh, but for for some people, it's I've been putting up with my exposure to mycotoxins or other toxins, and I don't feel it because you know I I got good vitality. Suddenly, then I have you know COVID or Lyme or whatever, and now my immune system has no energy you know to to put up with all the toxicity or you know, immuno, uh, inhibitory things like mycotoxins. So suddenly it's all a huge deal, you know, or maybe, you know, maybe I had hormonal things I'm getting along. I'm, I'm not having big symptoms, but my hormonal system auto-regulates and it's been auto-regulating in a downward trend. And suddenly I get sick enough with something else. Now, you know, as if overnight my hormones aren't working anymore, you know, all these things I've seen this happen as you have with post COVID people, but really, you know, what we see, it's no different than our Lyme patients or our, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. I I think this is where conventional medicine tends to, uh, short people in that when you've got this complex level of illness and, you know, if you're get your seven to 10 minutes with your primary care provider, you know, it's one problem, one solution. And right. the reality is you're probably dealing with multiple problems and you might need multiple solutions. So, you know, I guess this is where uh, perhaps naturopathic medicine, functional medicine might supersede conventional medicine, which is really effective at heroic medicine. My goodness, if you break your arm, please go to the ER. They're great at that if you yeah. need surgery and that level of intervention. Yeah. But for so much chronic illness, uh, I think what, what stops a lot of people from getting well is just time the time you need for someone to really sit down, evaluate you as an individual with your level of complexity and do that detective work and trying to sort out what is it for you that's stopping you from get well. Yeah. Yeah. And I I do think that's, uh, that whole phenomenon of, you know, the acute care model of medicine has evolved to the place where it's perfect where it's supposed to work, you know, which is keeping us alive when bad things happen. And, acute problems, et cetera. And although those of us in our end of medicine know this forever, COVID is now showing us that that model really can't be applied to this 
to a chronic illness. It's just not going to work, you know? And, and so you see, you know, even, even big academic centers where that post COVID clinics and everything, they're trying the best they can, but they're trying to do it with this, you know, single agent theory or at best a couple of things, you know, and they're, people are frustrated because a, they wait forever to get into the specialty clinic. And then B, if they don't have an organ problem, thank God, they're given a few symptomatic medications and then hopefully you get better at some point, which we've seen with chronic fatigue and fibro and Lyme and everything for forever. So I do think it's, you know, but then it's frustrating on, it can be frustrating to the doctor, but it's frustrating on the patient side to realize, oh, there isn't an acute care model to make this better. You know, it's not like I know my arm's going to be six weeks in a cast or I got a week of antibiotics to take for my strep throat or something. Uh, this is going to be a process because you have to unwind all that. And I think that's another thing that becomes, it can kind of take away from your agency and your ability to be an empowered patient because you just feel like, oh, I don't want to do this, you know? Um, so it's, that's when that relationship with, you know, provider and patient, you know, half of it is just keeping both engaged and realizing we're moving forward slow as it may be. Uh, but you're not being cut loose and, you know, you're not being told, well, that's all we can do, et cetera. So I do think that's a big factor. Well, I think you bring up a good point too about healing is that it's very individual and the process can vary from person to person and there's really no set time. I mean, we we all get asked as healthcare providers, you know, when when is this going to change, when to expect? And, you know, we might have a general framework, but some people heal quickly and some people heal very yeah. slowly. And I tell some people, you know, it's like, it can be like watching grass grow. I mean, it does grow. It's just day to day that that increment's so small. You know, yeah. you live in your body every day. You you might not be as as aware, depending on how much you know, kind of in touch you are with your your body. But I see a lot of people where you know time goes on. You know, often it's a course of months where you know say, well, how are you feeling? I don't really feel any better. Oh well, do you still get the headaches? Oh well, no, no, the head. No, I don't get headaches anymore. Well, what about that ankle pain? Oh yeah, I guess I've been back jogging again. It's like, you know, you forget because the time frame is so slow and long that, you know, it's easy to kind of forget because the goal is you want to feel 100% perfect. And right. even if there's 25 or 30% improvement because you're not perfect yet, the brain sometimes says, "Well, I'm not better." I'm like, "Well, you're not 100% better." Yeah. But it's important that we both recognize that the body is healing in in a way and it is moving in that direction so um I, yeah. I just think that's important for people to understand that you know you can't yeah. compare yourself to anybody else when it comes to healing no because you know chronically <clears throat> ill folks can get unwell in so many combinations of ways and how you unwind that is your own you know it's your own pathway um and i another phenomenon i've seen over and over which after a few years, I, I got smart enough to warn people about is as these things start happening, you know, where you're watching the grass grow, but you're subtly getting better. So maybe some of the orthopedic type things or, you know, connective tissue pain stuff is getting better. What I really would see is people would improve, improve, improve. Then they'd, they'd flatten out or have a little reversal. And that's when they get worried 
but usually the reversal isn't anything new. It's just, I don't have this problem so much anymore. My body's stronger. It now has energy to focus on this other area that was broken. <laughs> and so now, you know, I've got symptoms there, which may be more my immune system or more, you know, whatever other area. So I always tell them it's, you know, it's more like a roller coaster, but the trend is up. So that's what we want. Little reversal just means maybe we need to focus on new things, but it's not going to always go down. You know, it's better over time. And I, I do think, because people will often, you know, when you're not feeling well, you just want to feel better. You don't really, you don't want to think about all this stuff, but the way your body works is once I lower the burden of area A and get it working, then all the other areas have that energy now to focus on you know, I've got trouble over here, area B, C, and D. Let me give you some symptoms to work on here. So I think we see that a lot. <laughs> yeah, probably more than we <laughs> would uh, we would care to. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to shift gears just a little bit because I know this is an area of expertise. And again, kind of coming back to this idea of chronic infection, particularly chronic bacterial infection, we know that a lot of these bacteria can make this stuff called biofilm. Can you tell us a little bit about what it is and why is it potentially problematic? Yeah, it's, um, I think the first thing to start out with, because it's true and people point this out is, so biofilms are all over in nature. Uh, they're big in oceanography, you know, wet areas, of course. And biofilms are just a way for organisms to protect themselves in their environment. So, you know, the first described ones in humans were on our teeth, which can lead to dental issues, et cetera. But really throughout our whole digestive tract, to some degree in the vascular system and connective tissue, we can have biofilms. And the way that I try and explain it to patients is there's sort of three, uh, three types in a spectrum. You have the normal kind, and that's very much like we have normal bacteria that's normal flora. It's supposed to be there. Well, there's some normal biofilms that are just part of life. They're just part of our ecosystem. Those aren't a problem. <laughs> but when we get, and it's usually uh, a bacteria normally, something that we already have in a small amount, like in our digestive tract, like you might have Pseudomonas or one of these others that are known to create biofilms and they're fine. Like they're marginalized. They're just in tiny amounts. You know, we consider them low level commensals, but when we disrupt things, which could be a bunch of antibiotics and, you know, we get overgrowth of the wrong thing, or we just get really sick and run down or we get exposed to mycotoxins that sideline the immune system, something happens. And these guys either are introduced to us or that usually they just overgrow because they can. And then they do their thing. And one of their things is they make biofilms. Well, the comp, the complexity is now they're not part of our normal flora and normal ecology. They're growing. Uh, I'll tell people, you know, from like a tent to a stick house to, to a big building, the longer they're allowed to do it. And it can be with no symptoms, which is frustrating not only is it now a biofilm for that one organism, but they invite others into the biofilm. And to make it more complex, the, the modern biofilm researchers uh, say, now it's like you could have 10 different organisms of all different types. It could be virus, fungus, bacteria, parasites, everybody living in there. 
they now function as a different organism, which is the sum of all of them together. So a frustrating thing is a patient finds, you know, a bug that we know is bad and we try and kill it. And maybe the test turns negative, but they're, they're just as sick as they were before. And it's because whatever we did to kill that bug didn't kill any of the other guys. So, and they also can share, uh, they can share DNA in there. So they, if they have resistance factors or they all, they work together. So the biofilm is from, from the microbes perspective, just protecting them and, and they're having their own, you know, uh, increase in, in strength in the host, which is us. So <clears throat> the, the other layer of, you know, dealing with them, because if you look, you know, anthropologically at humans, we've been around a long time. Why, you know, let's take modern times with all the toxins and other junk we have to deal with out of it. Why would biofilms kind of be <clears throat> fairly stable in humans over time and maybe in modern times not? Because that to the degree that I, prior to COVID, uh, I think it was one of the government agencies that deals with health. I'll just say that listed, <laughs> listed biofilms as one of the major uh, health crises of the new millennium. And so why suddenly is this such a problem? Well, if you look at, and I have, if you look at indigenous diets prior to modern times, regardless of where you were in the world, what you find is the indigenous diet evolved in a way where they would use native plants, you know, herbs, spices, those sort of things, because it makes the food taste better. Turns out, and it doesn't matter what part of the world you look at the indigenous diet, those plants are also anti-biofilm formers. So as long as you're sort of keeping up with it as you go along, uh, that diet and those spices and those herbs actually would keep you from forming a whole bunch of uh, biofilms. And turns out they would also keep your, you know, your microbiome stable. Well, if you look at industrialized Western diet from, you know, 80, 100 years ago till now, most of it lost all of that. Plus you know, food is not food. Um, Sadly. And then, you know, then, then you add, you know, antibiotics and then you add, you know, things that we might need now and then, but it's sort of like, it's a lot easier to push the modern human over the cliff than it used to be. So then it comes to this place clinically where, you know, you and I get the patient and it's like, oh gosh, you know, look at this, this test. We've got these two bad actors, which we know are, you know, bad microbes. Uh, we know how to kill them. So you go after killing them. And then it's sort of like, it just, you know, some people call it like playing whack-a-mole or just trading places. Those might get weaker because we treated them, but then their friends that we don't know about still create the same problem. Right. And as you know better than I do, being a microbiologist, I'll tell patients, for every one bug we can find on a test, there's 20 to 100 that are related to it that we have no idea how to locate, you know? So it's not like, you know, and again, human nature, we would love to make one bug really bad. And if we could just kill it, that makes us feel better. But when you're chronically ill, you know, the biofilms play into this resistance and other things. Uh and then there's this other more, mo you know, modern last 15, 20 years, which really the, our, our military has lots of money for research and they really push this research forward, which is 
not all biofilms are created equal. And when you look at, you know, dirty wounds, post-surgical wounds, and also chronically ill people, they have a much, you know, these are the skyscraper like uh, biofilms. They're much more complex and there's many more organisms in there and they just take longer to deal with. So uh, that's hopefully the cliff note version of biofilms, but they, they're really a big part of modern chronic illness, I believe. Well, we know something like Lyme is also very effective at making biofilm. And I remember reading a study, and I forget which organism, it might have been Klebsiella, but when biofilm was present, they had to give 250 times the amount of antibiotic to kill the bug mm-hmm. than when biofilm was not present. Yeah. So the, the, I think the clinical relevance of this is that if we can strip away the biofilm, you know, yeah. we're exposing that organism to antibiotics, antimicrobial herbs, whatever you're using to try and get the bug under control. And, you know, we potentially give the body that opportunity to go after it more efficiently when we can strip that biofilm away. Now, again, as a microbiologist, I would say, look, you know, biofilm, again, is a normal part of a lot of bacteria. So it's not like you don't want to have no biofilm because that creates a different kind of problem. But it's kind of like we want to break it down a little, just not... A hundred percent. Yeah. And it, and, and I think that's a very important piece. It's sort of like our normal bi- microbiome. We don't want to destroy that either. We, sometimes there's some friendly fire and we, we have to rebuild the microbiome, but we, we want that normal human, you know, symbiotic biofilm that we all have. And I think in reality, you know, because uh, you're dealing with humans, I don't think there's ever a point where you would degrade the actual base biofilm it's it's the pathogenic and you're probably never degrading them to the point of being totally gone either it's more bringing homeostasis back um but you know clinically one thing you know because the the biofilms if you're not a microbiologist are kind of a weird concept i would often tell clinicians okay you've got maybe you've got some stool testing or something and you had one two three hits for bacteria just put into the search bar that bacteria and biofilm as a search agent, and it will tell you right away how good of a biofilm former it is. And most of the ones we find are small, medium, or large biofilm formers. So again, it's those are, you know, those are in in everybody's body, even the big bad ones, but they're in tiny amounts, like clostridia. Right. It's when we throw our microbiome off or we get you know we've got mold or or other toxins that are shutting our immune system down or our diet's horrible they just overgrow and they do what they do which which is make a biofilm then everyone piles on and you've got a new problem (laughs) yeah interesting Uh, when i worked as a microbiologist uh when you culture out bacteria on a plate you basically take your sample you streak it out on a plate that has different types of agar which is kind of like gelatin and then you flip the plate upside down before you put it in the incubator. Well, Klebsiella, you can tell the minute you pull it out of the incubator because it looked like someone blew their nose on the bottom of the plate. It creates so much <laughs> biofilm on a plate. Literally, it drips from the plate down to the bottom of the Petri dish. So I mean, we used to laugh. It's like, well, we don't even have to run any tests. You know exactly <laughs> what it is just from the amount of biofilm that's accumulated <laughs> in the plate before you even run any kind of analysis. Yeah. So. Because this is, again, part of your normal gut flora, you can imagine when that starts to overgrow, it's potential to create more biofilm in the gut. Uh, you know, that can create different types of gastrointestinal issues. Yeah. 
So yeah. I guess the million dollar question then is, you know, how do we treat these biofilms? What can we do to help improve the efficacy of our antimicrobial therapy? Yeah, and, and I think um, when I started to consciously use biofilm agents, you know, in a, in a more uh, thought through therapeutic manner with maybe anti-infectives or probiotics or whatever we're doing, it made huge differences in people with, you know, higher level uh, dysfunctions. And it could be, uh, we saw a lot of changes in children and you know, pans pandas. So it doesn't have to be an older person if they have a big problem, but especially chronically ill people have been sick more than five or 10 years. There's, there's big problems. So when you look at, so there's the sort of homeostatic things that could be in our diet and were traditionally, which are mostly aromatic herbs and spices and things. Phase one biofilms, the, you know, maybe the tent size or a small house size, aromatic herbs work really well there. If you look at the lists, you, you mentioned earlier, higher doses of say antibiotics and things that certainly yeah. is one way, but sometimes not compatible with the human. Um, but then, uh, aromatic herbs are very, very useful in that setting. And the thing I always liked is if they hadn't grown to the, you know, the big bad biofilms, aromatic herbs also are anti-infective across a real broad spectrum. So opportunistic fungi and some of the bacteria and you know even some viruses a lot of the aromatic herbs will just tamp them down so it's always worth starting there but in people just, I'm, I'm sorry paul can you yeah. just explain to people what aromatic herbs are which ones yeah so um literally the you know it's it's uh it's it's not an official taxonomy but it's all of the ones that really you can smell so when you um when you look at aromatics, you think of like oregano, literally one of the, probably one of the most broad spectrum things, uh, thyme, um, all of the, um, you know, any herb that, that you, if it wasn't in a capsule and sometimes even in the capsule, you would, you would have an odor to it. Uh, and it's because the chemistry of it is, uh, there, there's more aromatic chemistry, which our nose will pick up, which is hence, hence the smell. So really broad spectrum things, you know, like oregano oil and, and, and thyme oil. And, uh, sometimes, sometimes olive leaf fits into this. There, there's like a lot of herbs that we smell. Interestingly too, when people see the list, it's, it's, it's often a lot of culinary herbs that are used right. at higher concentration. So that's, uh, that's that group. And, and probably without even knowing it or knowing a lot about biofilms forever, we've thought of those as, you know, pretty gut friendly herbs, but also pretty effective at reducing the amount of a bunch of microbes. Uh, but it turns out that probably also are beating up on the biofilm. What the, uh, and I'm blaming the military because they spent the most, uh, you know, money on this. But what the military showed us in the last 25 years is there's a step beyond that. Usually if you have either a big trauma, uh, surgery will do this and also just sick a long time. And that's where they get too big for antimicrobials to get through or aromatics or anything else. Uh, and so then you actually have to have agents that literally kind of wedge themselves into the biofilm matrix. So the immune system then can see what's going on inside. So when we think of like a lot of biofilm therapies in modern times, 
definitely the aromatic herbs are a big core of that. Also, there's, uh, you know, enzymes, which will help disrupt the matrix. Um, sometimes people use like a chelator, like EDTA and some of the supplements, all of those kind of get you to that phase of, of the, f- the first bad group, the phase ones, phase twos, those things are helpful, but the matrix is so much thicker and bigger. Uh, that's when more complex molecules seem to work better. So all of the big research of the last 20 years has looked at um, bismuth, like in Pepto-Bismol, that's one form of bismuth. They use a little uh, uh, little stronger version. And then a, a thiol, like, uh, like sulfury things, or like N-acetylcysteine, the supplement smells like you know sulfur because it's got a lot of sulfur in it. Alpha-lipoic right. acid, those are thiols. And then like, you and I might use a more complex style to deal with heavy metals like DMSA or DMPS. They're actually chelators. And for a long time, I think before this research was really well worked out, we would see people do like an oral chelator for heavy metals purportedly, but they would suddenly either for better or worse, get GI symptoms. Yeah. And a lot of that was the biofilms are suddenly opening up. And so what I learned maybe a little bit the hard way uh, <laughs> once realizing this is when you get to these heavier agents, whether it's a dithyl chelator or a thiol and a bismuth stuck together in a new drug or something, you have to be very close with the patient as far as, look, if part of the problem is a big biofilm been there a while, and this even in kids with pandas, we saw this, as soon as the your immune system sees those organisms, it, you got to keep in mind, it hasn't been seen them before your immune system reacting suddenly can be very shocking. And so people get very inflamed or if their adrenals weren't ready to pump out enough natural cortisol, you know, they might crash really bad or get really inflamed or depressed or something. So we would always say, we'll see if we're moving that way. If your body has a reaction, that's when uh, very effectively, like those broad spectrum aromatics, like, you know, oregano and thyme and things, very helpful. And then usually a lot of adrenal support because you get this sudden immune burst, which then calls on your adrenals. Chronically ill people don't have a lot left with the adrenals, so you might have to, you know, boost that up. But it, it's very clinically apparent when it happens in in my experience. And it could be you could be having used, you know, the more gentle biofilm agents, and you kick it up to something else, and suddenly, boom, you know, you've got these symptoms, and it's not. You know, people equate symptoms with something's gone really wrong. No, it's just that, you know, it's sort of like hopefully someone listening seen Casablanca, you know, where uh, the uh, police prefect goes in and he's just won all this money gambling. And he, he says, I'm shocked to see there's gambling going on here, Rick. Uh, it's a lot like that with your immune system. It's like, oh, I'm shocked to see all these microbes around. <laughs> and the immune system does its job. So, so big reactions, you can deal with them, but that's usually a sign that you had a bigger problem. Well, I, again, I, it's an important part of a lot of my treatment you know, plans for people is, you know, when we're dealing with chronic infection, you know, we might be using targeted herbs, maybe even antibiotics, but having something to help break down that biofilm often, you know, helps expedite the process of getting through that persistent infection to, uh, a little easier. And again, I, I like a lot of the products out there. I know you have a product you developed. I have a product I developed, and there's numerous other ones that uh, all effective at helping strip that biofilm away 
And again, it's just a nice addition to your plan if you've been dealing with chronic infection. Again, just because so many of these yeah. organisms are biofilm producers. And yeah. again, it's just one easy thing that, again, I find most people tolerate pretty well. Yeah. And I, I, I do always tell people, because, you know, you, you, you can get anything uh, online anymore. Um, if you've been sick a long time and you're just in the beginning of maybe dealing with biofilms, this is a time to be very close with your provider and make sure they can respond to things that might come up. Uh, but the other, the other upside is however bad they got over time, they can get better in reverse order, you know, and they can be more yeah. manageable. So it's not like you're you know, doomed. It's, you just have to get them opened up, get the immune system interacting and maybe some agents uh, to kill them and some support for the body. And then they, it's sort of like if you go from big, bad ones, they can go down to little bad ones and then maybe back to the normal ones. So that's, that's always the goal. Well, as you all can hear, this is why I enjoy talking with Dr. Anderson, always a uh, wealth of knowledge and uh, just uh, a great educator. And I, I want listeners to know Dr. Anderson has a great YouTube channel and I'd love to direct you there. So we're going to drop the link in the show notes, but uh, he's got so many great videos on uh, topics on really just about everything. Uh, I always appreciate uh, Paul for being the consummate learner and educator for doctors and for the public. Uh, so uh, Dr. Anderson, is there a specific link to your YouTube channel that you can say, or is it long and we should just spell it out for folks? I think it might be easier for, uh, for them to just get a link from you. Okay. Uh, it, it's, it's under just DR, uh, underscore a online. So like Dr. A online, but there's, that can lead to many things that aren't me. So we'll let's give you the real link and go from there. All right. Well, we'll make sure and drop that link in. So definitely check out his YouTube channel, take advantage of all that free information. And I think you're going to find it yeah. very educational and helpful in your own healing process. So Paul, again, I really appreciate you spending time with us today and joining us on the show. Thanks a lot.